every generation has its own particular kind of struggles. We seem to have more than one, obviously, in our generation, but for sure we have become a people who have this particular one. We're fatherless, lacking in identity, purpose, and destiny. Now, being a Christian doesn't automatically heal this inner chasm. To have sins forgiven is a blessed thing, and only a fool would belittle that. Yet, still, even after initial conversion, there is in many people a lingering sense of insecurity. Counseling may help sort out some of it, but if at the very root of the problem there is a view of God that is broken, confused, then the source of anxiety becomes, quote, God. What kind of counseling can help that? Tell me all day long why I'm unstable. Or, or draw me a map of my formative years and point out all the trouble spots in it. Then give me all sorts of methods to retrain my thinking and overcome bad, bad habits and release my creative energies. With all due respect to the good in all of that, it all means nothing if at the bottom of it all, I have a poisoned image of my own creator. If the very word father, for instance, conjures in me more negative than positive, then counseling is really kind of whistling in the dark. And mere psychology, as helpful as it may be in certain ways, cannot override theology. If my theology offers me an image of God that is in opposition to all my deepest hopes and greatest needs, I'm still in trouble. Being told, it's not about you, it's about God, may shake me into a moment of sober reflection on the obvious reality of the fact that God is great and I'm not. God is good and I'm not. God is the main issue and I'm not. That in itself is not a bad realization. It's really a very important, vital one. But what does it mean for me as a mere tiny human being to simply bow to the obvious greatness of God and my comparative smallness if that's all I'm left with? I didn't create myself. I was created. Therefore, the basic longings I find screaming up from inside me were not my idea, they were his. Unless I believe he's merely a cosmic sadist, enjoying watching the desperate scurrying of his creatures across the face of the earth, then it must be a given that the cry of the heart for answers and for meaning and for comfort in the face of uncertainty is okay with him, that, that he means for us to cry out. Now, I may seem very self-centered to some if I say, with all due respect, God's greatness and my smallness is an obvious given. But that in itself doesn't help me survive or thrive. It may even send me the opposite direction if I'm made to feel that my need to understand is simply arrogance or presumption. Is that really all the Judaic Christian faith has to offer? Is a slap in my face for presumption? Or a sermon on how big God is and how small I am and how stupid of me to hope that there might be more to it than a comparison of the incomparable with the utterly finite? This seems to put bullying at a totally incomprehensibly out-of-all-proportion level. God is the bully, and I'm the hopeless tiny worm that 
didn't mean to ask any questions, and how dare I have any struggles, and, well, you get the picture. Well, of course, I'm not painting a picture of the real God. I'm, I'm painting a picture that has sadly been formed for us by religion. But what if I am in touch with some good things about God, some true things? What if I am uh, understand his supremacy or, or even his goodness? But if I grasp these positives but still have undealt with negatives that are too painful to examine, then the best I'll be able to do is to shove the bad parts down and keep a lid on them. That means that I will be living in a constant state of potential inner cracking and eventual splitting. I'd be like a, a beautiful island that's only a facade because underneath is a boiling volcano. I might carry on happily for a while, but any tremor could send me running to where? If the very ground of my being is about to open up and swallow me, there's no place to go. And if the very God I claim to trust is really deep down where it truly counts, just a, quote, consuming fire, as the very scripture I read says he is, then how long can I live in the upper facade before I finally lose the power to keep the upper facade in place and fall down into the cracks below? Then what? I'm not talking here of erasing mystery. Anytime we speak of anything resembling the, the real God, if there is no mystery in our discussion, we're not talking about the real God. But in the face of such mystery, there still must be some cohesion between what I, his creature, desperately need and what he, the creator, longs to give. I cannot live with utter contradiction and try to pass that off as mystery. I can't live with a conscious hope for goodness while suppressing an inner terror of cruelty, both focused on the same God and simply call that paradox. Mystery, that which is beyond my comprehension, I can bow to. I must. I do. But outright total irrationality passed off as mystery just makes me crazy. And the more I try to cope with it and produce some sort of coping balance between the two, the crazier I get. We live in a time when respect for authority is vanishing. I think part of the reason for that is not just sheer rebellion, but a frustration with the very kind of irrationality that I'm talking about that so often passes itself off as theology. Well, with the loss of confidence in authority comes a flood tide of options. So many options that drowning in them is inevitable. For if everything is fluid and nothing is solid, there's no place to stand. But in spite of all this horrendously fake religious gobbledygook of the past few decades, there remains one unescapable reality, more historically tested and attested than any other. And that is that Jesus of Nazareth died a physical death on a Roman cross and came back to life again. Those who scoff at that fact have never examined the facts of that fact, or they would not scoff. Honest unbelievers who do examine the facts simply say, yes, the facts are there. 
I just choose to reject them. At least they're intellectually honest. There's one who has come down to us from God who is himself the very image and nature of that God and who has told us as much and has revealed to us as much as we can grasp of what God is like and what God thinks about us. So if we choose to humble ourselves to him, we can get a trustworthy picture of what God is like and we can choose to trust that or not. Now, I know it's far too simplistic for some people to simply examine what Jesus has to tell us about the Father. We want all our questions about why there's war and evil and earthquakes and disease answered. Then we might consider giving Jesus uh, a listen, but you won't get those answers here or anywhere. I assure you, humanism has not got any answers, but there's a question no one ever seems to ask. Not, why is there evil? That seems to me pretty obvious. Look in the mirror. Why is there evil? How come we never ask, why is there goodness? What about that mystery? Where did love come from? Why do we all crave it so desperately? There's so much evil around us and in us, it seems silly to dwell on that. But in the face of such evil, how, from where does goodness come? How does it survive and thrive in the face of so much evil? Why does even the most outspoken atheist often claim that his non-belief is based on his anger over injustice? Why does he expect anything else but injustice? Where is justice supposed to come from? And who decides what is just and what isn't? No, We will not try to answer all these issues here and now, as if we could. There will be a time and place for you to pursue such issues, if you must. And there are answers more than most people realize, if they take the time and make the effort to push through the struggle to get there. But if you could settle it in your heart that the one who came from heaven and lived among us and died and rose from the grave has something to say to us about God, his Father, something that could help form in us a picture that we might begin to embrace of a God who you might want to open your heart to and trust, that would be a much wiser place to begin than trying to satisfy all the philosophical questions. So can we begin? Now, I wouldn't be surprised if at least some who discover that this time together is going to be focused on what has been historically called the parable of the prodigal son, find themselves immediately bored and want to just forget it. It may not be so much that you don't appreciate the story. It's just that, after all, we've heard it so many times. I don't blame you if you feel that way. I have to admit, I I probably would feel that way too. But I'm going to ask you to put that aside, if that applies to you, and stick with me for the time we have together, because I believe you'll be amazed at what we do not know about this familiar story we have erroneously tended to call the prodigal son. Maybe erroneously is too strong a a, a term, because after all, it is about a young man who wastes his inheritance, and that's what it means to be prodigal. 
but we have tended to misunderstand the story partly by misunderstanding the meaning of prodigal. We we somehow think prodigal means trashy, dirty, sleeping with pigs. Uh, we mistakenly take the accusations of the self-righteous older brother who accuses his brother of having thrown away his inheritance with harlots as a statement of fact. So a prodigal in our minds is not someone who foolishly and selfishly wastes his opportunities for life. No, he's simply a whoremonger and a party animal. And that doesn't fit our own story, maybe, so we can excuse ourselves from paying too much attention to the gross details of the life of the prodigal. We all think we get the gist of it. The young man, driven by pride and lust, demands his inheritance early. We, we get that. If we are especially studious, we may understand that what makes this partly so horrible is that by asking for his inheritance early, he's actually stating that he wishes his father was dead, but since he's not, could you please give me the inheritance anyway as if you were? Uh, We understand what a hurtful thing that would be to the father. Now, when I've taught on this story, before I have made it a point uh, to say anything else, I always bring out the fact that Middle Eastern experts, in all the years of examining this story throughout the Middle East, have only found two examples that could be documented of any son asking such a thing of his father. In one case, the father, an, an Arab, killed his son. In the other case, a Jewish father gave his son his request but then died almost immediately from a broken heart. We get it. This story is meant to shock the hearers into an encounter with a picture of a father they do not know anything about culturally. So we assume that because we know this much, that we know the depth of the story. I believe, though, that we are all, myself included, like someone who sees a minimal sketch of a great painting and believes then that we have seen the real painting in all its color and texture. We don't know the depth of this story yet very much at all. I've never been satisfied with my own presentation of it and over the years have sought to find ways to dig into its deeper meaning by examining the work of people who have lived in the Middle East, who have encountered in a much more powerful way the human drama that this story contains. They've not only read it in its various ancient translations, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Syriac, and Arabic, but they've lived right in the very atmosphere of a people whose customs and ways of thinking and responding have not changed in the 2,000 years since Jesus told the story. This is a portion of a much larger study that I've been doing on the way Jesus confronted his culture. He didn't seek to be different just for difference sake, or to be some radical who comes to shake up and insult all the old fogies of his era. That was never his spirit. But he did come to reveal the Father. And in doing so, he almost constantly is confronting broken ways of thinking and behaving that have become so ensconced in the culture that it becomes what you might call Well, this is what everybody knows. This is what everybody does. Everybody but Jesus. 
In fact, the very word exegete, which means to draw a clear meaning from a text and make it understandable, is the word used in John chapter 1, verse 18, to describe why Jesus came. Quote, no man has seen the Father at any time. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has, literally in the Greek text, exegeted him. So in story after story of the New Testament, Jesus responds in various situations and encounters with people in ways that are totally in opposition to the so-called norms of his culture. And he is manifesting the heart of the Father in each one of these encounters. He reveals how very, very different the heart of God is from how we are and from how we therefore think God is. Now, such a study will make us love Jesus and God the Father more and more, I promise you. It will reveal how very much our own crooked thinking, supported by the crooked thinking of those around us, keeps us from seeing and therefore loving Jesus and the Father as we might if such wrong concepts were cleared away. For instance, in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, Jesus tells the parable of a man who orders his two sons to go to the field and work. The first son defies and refuses his father, but then later repents and obeys him. The second bows to his father reverently and verbally complies, but never goes to the field at all. Now, to our minds, there's not that much shocking about this parable, but to the ears of the original hearers, Jesus was ripping away a giant facade of hypocrisy. See, in his culture and time, there was a, an everybody-knows attitude on all kinds of things. Everybody knows. It's normal for sons to always be outwardly honorable and respectful to their fathers. No one would ever do otherwise. Never mind that the outward respect is merely show and pretense with no substance behind it. Everybody knows. So Jesus abruptly rips away this falsehood by telling this parable. And you and I have a hard time comprehending the atmosphere of embarrassed corporate understanding that would have been brought about when Jesus says these things out loud. There are so many examples like this in the New Testament. In later studies, we hope to examine them. But for now, we want to focus on the prodigal son. And to do that, we will not turn to Luke fifteen eleven, where the prodigal son story is found. Why not? Well, because that is not where the point of the story of the prodigal son begins. If we're going to understand the fullness of it, we've got we to gotta have it in its full context. The thing we most want to get away from here is the rather typical habit of taking a text out of its fuller setting, squeezing a few sermon points from it. We want to understand the entire flow of thought and the emotional responses that flow out of that whole picture as much as we possibly can. So before you get nervous about the idea that we can't, quote, just read the Bible and understand plainly what it says on the page without a lot of fancy scholarship Listen to me just a moment. I agree fully that none of us should have to have a degree in Middle Eastern studies in order to understand the plain statements of Scripture. We can get it when it says, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not lie. But what about thou shalt not kill? 
many a policeman, soldier, and home protector has stumbled over this commandment, wondering if, in the carrying out of their duty to protect and serve, they might have broken this commandment. No, the Hebrew is, you shall do no murder. So here's an example of where a deeper understanding is needed. Thou shalt not kill. No, thou shalt do no murder. And if you stand by and let evil happen and someone is murdered because you were standing by, the Torah held you responsible for participating in the evil. So either there's a difference between thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not murder, or we have a, an impossible demand on us that can't be fulfilled. But let me give you an even more common one, maybe closer to home. I learned this from a very wise British linguist. Listen to the following phrase and think what it means to you. Quote, I am mad about my flat. Now, to an American ear, this sentence means, obviously, we say, obviously, Someone is upset over their deflated tire on their car. But Mary and I have been in British culture enough that when I first heard this sentence, I heard it not with American ears. Obviously, it means that. No, I heard it with British ears. And you know what I heard? I'm mad about my flat. I heard it as I'm really happy about my new apartment. Because in British parlance, it's it's common to say you're mad about something means you're really happy about it, and a flat is an apartment. Now, imagine us trying to bring a clear spiritual meaning out of this statement if it was a Bible verse. We would soon have a church split and end up with at least two denominations, the car tire group versus the apartment group. The apartment group would be happy and the car tire group would be angry, but sooner or later the happy group would grow angry over the angry group because the angry group doesn't see things the way the happy group does. You get the silly analogy. All I'm trying to point out here is that when it comes to basics of salvation, of getting to know God and his dealings in history, we don't need a lot of in-depth study or linguistics or cultural background. But if we're going to go from a sketch to a three-dimensional painting, if we're going to see not just the drab outline, but the deep, rich colors and hues, we will need to be willing to go a bit beyond what we like to call, quote, just reading what is clearly stated on the page, end quote. We're not wrong to enjoy the sketch, and the sketch is accurate. But why remain at that level if more is offered? Now, some of you may have read or are familiar with Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal. If you haven't read it, and this study awakens in you a desire to go further, then keep Henry Nouwen's book in mind. Also, I've for years, of course, drawn from the teachings of my mentor and close friend, Dwight Pryor, at the Center of Judaic Christian Studies, which I owe a huge debt of gratitude also, the writings of Dr. Ken Bailey, who not only uh, is an expert in Middle Eastern languages and customs, but who lived many decades among the peasants I mentioned before. These teachers have been my guides in this search for a greater understanding of what Jesus means for us to learn from his teachings. And among the vitally important things I've learned from these teachers is the need to understand context. Yes, the parable can speak for itself by itself. 
And certainly the Holy Spirit can lift points out of any portion of Scripture he chooses to create in us a revelation that specifically addresses our need. That's true. But just like a tweeter speaker can offer enough sound for a recording to play through it, if you want to hear all the highs and lows, the timber, the depth of the bass line, and truly hear what was fully meant to be heard, it'll take a larger system than just the tweeter. So we must spend time seeing the entire context that leads up to the telling of what we commonly call the parable of the prodigal son. So we begin at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. The background is this. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what will happen there this time. He will confront for the final time the religious and political forces that will result in his crucifixion. On his way to Jerusalem, he does what he has always done, loves, teaches, and heals. And among those he gives himself to are the especially broken people, the throwaways, the harlots, even the despised tax collectors, political traitors to their own people who sold their Jewish souls to the Romans in order to have a protected government job which gives them an advantage from which to steal tax money from their very own people. Even the harlots looked down on the tax collectors. The common name for them was pariah dog. No dogs in Israel were held in affection, unlike Americans and Western Europeans. But this particular dog was an emaciated, gnarled-toothed mongrel that lived off the stinking garbage heaps of Gehenna, the prototype of hell. You might call him, in our terminology, a hellhound. It was much worse than calling somebody an SOB, to call him a pariah dog. Jesus sees three categories of characters in this play being played out before him. The found, in quotation marks, the lost, and himself. And each story is part of an entire train of thought that is interwoven throughout the three stories. So we can't understand any one of them apart from the other two. They'll be subtle but clear, to the audience at least, if not to us, uh, revelations of what Jesus intends them to hear that will then underscore other points he makes in later parables. Now, what prompted these stories? Remember it says that uh, the Pharisees murmured and were angry because Jesus received sinners and was eating with them. So, Jesus told them this parable, or these parables. Well, these are important things to to look at. Verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Murmured. Used only twice in the New Testament, here and in Luke 19.7. Both times it refers to a kind of moving through the crowd like a snake and spewing venom as they go, seeking to poison the minds of anyone who happens to hear them. It's the same word used in Exodus 15.24 
Exodus 16, 2, 7, and 8, and Exodus 17, 3, of the people who murmured against Moses and Aaron. It's not just complaining, though that in itself is evil enough. It's complaining energized by a harsh and bitter judgment against the object of the complaint. So why are they so harsh? What are they so mad about? Well, they say so. They murmured, saying, this man receives sinners. The word receives here, in Greek, uh, dekomai, is a standard term for, quote, not rejecting, but allowing in. But here, a prefix is added, pros dekomai. And this means not merely to not reject or put up with, but it means to fully welcome into fellowship. Then on top of that, it says he not only welcomes them as if they're valuable. You get in the picture of Jesus welcoming these throwaways and treating them as if they're valuable. But then he, 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 he goes way beyond that. He eats with them. It's bad enough that he doesn't throw them out. It's worse that he puts his arms around them, but adding insult to injury, he eats with them. Jesus eats with them. This was one of the reasons why Paul was so angry at Peter in Galatians when Peter withdrew from the Gentiles he'd been eating with in order to save face with the Jewish party that uh, showed up. Middle Easterners believe that the act of eating together, there's impartation of blessing and shared life. You don't betray someone you eat with. Think of the numbers of Christians who partake of the Lord's table and then betray one another. No wonder there's so much sickness and brokenness in the church. Anyway, Jesus responds to this. Jesus begins to build a threefold cord by telling three stories which are really one story. So he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that, Likewise, joy will be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over the ninety-nine just persons who did not need repentance. That's the first of three stories that we need to examine, all making our way up to the climax and the pinnacle of the point, which is the prodigal son. Now, this is another one of those everybody knows things that Jesus is confronting right off. Here's how. The Pharisees began as a lay movement of working men. They were not preachers. They were not paid religious professionals. You didn't earn a living teaching Torah. So it was common knowledge that teachers would have a trade. Paul made tents. Jesus was a carpenter. Not a bad idea, by the way, to return to that when you think about the number of pastors who've been held hostage by salaries. But that's another subject. Over the years, an idea uh, developed among the Pharisees that shepherds were low-level, not necessarily unclean, but certainly not up to par. God the Father evidently rejected this idea at the birth of his son by making a special invitation to the shepherds in the field 
to come to see the baby Jesus. So now Jesus carries on his father's attitude by asking the Pharisees not which of you owning a hundred sheep and your hired hand loses one will send the hireling out to find it. That's not what he said. He said, which of you, which of you shepherds, which of you Pharisees who claim to be shepherds of God's people is the point. He says, not only which, which of you, but which of you, if he loses one of them, now, this is very important, and it's not something that we would know. I wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it if we weren't taught it. No one in common parlance in the Middle East ever uses a phrase that accuses himself of anything. It's still that way in modern speech. You never say, I missed my plane. You say, the plane left me. You did not drop and break a dish. The dish left your hand. Sounds like something my kids would say. But Jesus, remember, is answering the harsh bitterness of the murmuring Pharisees who despise him for loving the unlovable. So he begins with a parable about lost sheep. Then he moves to one about a lost coin. And then it crescendos into the story of a lost soul. There's a clear and strong rebuke in every word of this opening story. He's not only rebuking their arrogant superiority attitude over earthly shepherds whose feet are in the dirt, but he's rebuking their failure as spiritual shepherds. He's making a clear reference to Ezekiel's warning to the false shepherds found in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. You should take time to read that, not while you're driving. These very false shepherds who hate Jesus for loving the unlovable are the very false shepherds whom God is holding responsible for the failed condition of the unlovable people Jesus is standing there loving and caring for. The Pharisees have not loved them. They have not sought them. They have not, much less, healed them. So Jesus uses a term that was strange to their ear because it required a structure of language that they never used. What man of you, if he loses his sheep, does not leave the flock and go after that which is lost till he finds it? Now here's another everybody knows. Everybody knows what it means to have to bring back a lost sheep. They have to be carried and carried across extremely extremely treacherous terrain. The bigger the mess the sheep got itself in, the farther off the path it's gone, the more demanding will be the rescue on the shepherd. The normal picture of the rescuing shepherd is the sheep on his back with his legs tied together so the shepherd has one free hand to climb with because that's the kind of terrain we're talking about. The wilderness is dangerous. It would be understandable for the mere hireling who does not care for the sheep to hope he finds it dead so he can at least bring back parts of it to prove he didn't steal it. But Jesus uses the most joyful language possible to express his heart about the condition of the lost sheep. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I always think of Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured 
the cross. He returns to the village and fully expects each of them to be as happy as he is. Because, see, in normal cases, the entire village would have had sheep in such a flock. A, a, a flock of a hundred sheep is a community flock. Everybody in the, in, the, in the village would have some sheep in that corporate flock. Again, Jesus is clearly holding everyone present responsible for the condition of the unlovable in their midst. He's saying, it should matter to you supremely, as it does to me, what happens to any single one of these. And in a day when the demonic lies of communism and socialism, disguising itself as social justice, is once again taking uh, its place on the stage of history. The loss of the one, see, the, in, the idea in, in this scheme of political so-called social justice is that the loss of the one is a worthy sacrifice for the sake of the many. We don't care about the one because we care about the many. God Almighty knows such high-sounding false social concern is a lie and rebukes it in this story. He who alone has the power to save the many by offering his own single life states clearly, quote, that the one among the many is worth his highest effort to save. This is why we can truly say, if you had been the only one that needed him, Jesus would have come for you. The 99 are only secure if the one is loved for itself. For any one of the 99 could have become the lost one. And if the shepherd does not love the lost one, there is no reason to believe any of the 99 are loved or are safe. The idea of the value of the whole group being more important than the care for the one individual is clearly an ideology from hell and has produced hell on earth every time it has been given precedence. Again, please keep in mind that all the time we're talking about the lone lost sheep, we're talking about the prodigal. They're not two separate stories, and we will not understand any of it fully without getting the entire picture. Jesus concludes this first level of answering the bitter criticism of the Pharisees by saying, I tell you now, that like the rejoicing villagers over the restored lost sheep, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over the ninety-nine, quote, just persons, end quote, which need no repentance. Please note the following. Jesus equates repentance in this particular story with being a helpless, lost person who is willing to be found by the shepherd. No working his way back to the shepherd is either necessary or possible. His repentance is simply in yielding to the saving arms reaching for him. This again is in the face of the demanding scowl of the religious leaders he's addressing. They are those he describes in Matthew 23, the most blistering rebuke in the entire New Testament of failed shepherds, by the way. Read it all if you can. 
But now look at verse 23 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. By the way, the phrase is here, justice, mercy, and faith. Uh, To the Hebrew ear, you would hear him saying, rescue, care, and faithfulness. Justice is rescue. Not locking them all up and throw away the key because we're tough on crime. That's not what he's talking about here. He's shown you, you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He said, you've, you've done all the outward important things you, you've made important. He said, you should do those outward things while not neglecting the weightier matters of the law, treating people in a way that is meant to rescue them from injustice, being merciful to those who have fallen and living in faithfulness to God. Jesus closes the first story of Luke 15 here by addressing their demanding, legalistic, small-minded view of the Torah, which makes it impossible for these untouchables, these throwaways, as those Jesus is there uh, loving and, and bringing home. They've, they've made it impossible for these people to come back to God. I mean, are you getting the picture? Here's the Pharisees, here's Jesus, and here's the throwaways. Just like in the parable, uh, uh, you've got uh, uh, the sheep, the shepherd, and the people in the village. Then in the parable of the uh, prodigal, you'll see, of course, the father, the younger brother, and the older brother. Jesus says, the only repentance I require of these throwaways in this circumstance is for them to let me love them and bring them home to my father. That's repentance for them. Now, this, of course, does not mean that in other circumstances, all repentance would be like that. But in this context, he's rebuking the leader's lovelessness for making secondary and even tertiary legal issues the main issues, while completely rejecting and ignoring the truly primary matters of the law, love, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Then finally, in clearly tongue-in-cheek humor, Jesus says, "There's a far more, uh, there's far more joy in God's heart over the unlovable who turn and come home than there is over those who claim to be home already and don't need repentance." Remember Matthew 21, we spoke about a while ago, verses 28 through 32. Jesus tells the story of the man who had two sons. Everybody knows that you're supposed to be nice to your father to his face, but then you can do what you want to behind his back. Everybody knows that except God the Father and Jesus. And here's what they say about it. The one who's messed up supremely and has no right to hold his head up but who repents and comes home to the Father is the true Son. And the one who prides himself in his own righteousness and gives all, all, all of his outward show of religion while in his heart he doesn't love God and doesn't love people, that's another story. 
So let's try to summarize quickly here what Jesus has said to them. Basically four, four principles which I've borrowed from Dr. Bailey. Number one, this is the summary of the shepherd's heart. This is the heart of the shepherd that has gone after the sheep. He accepts responsibility for the loss of the sheep, even though it was his underlings who, who lost the sheep. In, in, uh, in the cultural setting, uh, no flock of a hundred sheep would be protected and cared for by only one shepherd. There would be a shepherd and then there would be under shepherds. It would be the under shepherds who fail to protect the sheep and it would be the chief shepherd who goes after them at his own peril. And so the heart of the shepherd is that he accepts responsibility for the loss of the sheep. And he doesn't euphemize by saying, you know, the sheep left me. He says, which of you, having lost a sheep, would not do whatever it took to go after them till you find them? He's not saying he's responsible for their loss. He's saying my under-shepherds are responsible, but I will bear the brunt of the salvaging. Number two, he searches without counting the cost. There's no thought of, I wonder how far off he's wandered. I wonder what kind of terrain I've got to stumble through. I wonder, I know I'm going to have to pick him up. I wonder how much he weighs. Most sheep weighed somewhere between 70 and 90 pounds. i got to put that fat, lazy, stupid sheep on my shoulders and bring him back. Uh, I hope a buzzard's got him by now. Nothing like that. In fact, the farther off the sheep has wandered and the more of a mess he's into, the more the shepherd presses on. And that should be very comforting to people like me and some of you who are listening who are like I was, who made a horrible mess of your life in your departure from the fold. And you grieve over what it's taken and how long it's taken for your restoration. But the shepherd who went after you doesn't pick you up and say with a sigh, oh man, I can't believe how far off you've gotten. What a mess you're in. How many brambles you got all over you. No, he, he says that he lifts the sheep up rejoicing. Rejoicing. This, this is the word of, for dancing and leaping and praising God. So it brings us to number three. He rejoices even in the burden that you are to him. He rejoices even in the burden that you are to him. You know, you remember the song back in the 60s? I can't think of it without tears coming to my eyes. Uh, <clears throat> he ain't heavy, he's my brother. You might remember the song. If you, if you don't know it, you, you ought to go find a copy of it and listen to it. But uh, He ain't heavy, he's my brother. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads who knows where. But I'm strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. And that song was written by a man who was standing on a street corner in New York City on a cold, windy day. And he looked over next to him, and there was a little boy, about 12 years old. And a, well, a smaller boy was on on his back. And the 12-year-old was carrying the younger little boy across the street, getting him across the treacherous, dangerous traffic. And he looked down at the little fellow and he said, 
That's got to be kind of hard for you to do, isn't it? And the kid looked up with a grin, big grin on his face, and he said, Oh, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Can you, can you hear what I'm saying? He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Then number four, the shepherd not only takes responsibility for the loss, not only searches without counting the cost, not only rejoices even in the burden of the restoration, but then number four, he calls the community to rejoice with him equally in the success of the restoration. Why? Because every one of them has a stake in this loss and therefore in it, in the restoration. There is no such thing as anybody being expendable. There's no such thing as no one mattering. You know, after, after pastoring for years and after being parts of church gatherings of various kinds for years, I can't tell you how many times I've been privy to a conversation either directed at me or I was in the presence of others talking about it, where somebody is being discussed and the discussion goes something like, well, you know, they had not been here in weeks. I don't know what their problem is. Well, you know, they're always mad about something. Well, we're probably better off without them. And then it'll go off into some theological uh, explanation as to how God sometimes has to purge out the dross from among us. And that gets so easy to do, to turn people into dross that needs to be purged out from among us. I've been guilty of it. Don't think I'm standing on some mountain wagging my holy finger down at you. I've been guilty of it. I've been so guilty of it. And uh, there's lots of people, lots of people I wish I could find and uh, wash their feet and ask their forgiveness. They may not have ever known that I sinned against them by unloving criticism behind their back, which makes it even worse. They may not ever know that I was indifferent at their absence or that I really was kind of glad to find out they'd gone on. And I don't want to be legalistic. Some pastors and leaders who may be listening to this, you might be thinking, oh, man, Clay, you're, you're beating me really hard with this stick, but you just don't know what I've had to deal with with these people. I know there are cases. I mean, you find them in the New Testament. Paul talks about them. He talks about those who uh, uh, are, are sources of uh, uh, trouble and those who are the word uh, uh, heretic, uh, the word heretic doesn't originally mean someone who has different doctrine from you. A heretic was someone who split relationships, who broke covenant. And uh, Paul talks about those who are heretics, those who divide. And there's lots of scripture. It would take a whole hour together just to go through uh, those scriptures. Uh, certainly uh, there are false prophets and there are false teachers and there are uh, I mean, the whole book of Galatians Paul is dealing with those and he's so angry at him over uh, demanding circumcision as a, a proof of conversion that he tells them they ought to go castrate themselves if they're so in love with uh, the blade so I'm not saying there's not a place for that but I'm just saying for for earth's sake for heaven's sake Let's be very careful before we start 
categorizing people as dross or uh, swine that we don't want to cast our pearls in front of. Uh, you don't have the right to say those kind of things until you have wept through in prayer over over them and gotten the heart of God on the situation. And boy, I can preach this so good because I tell you, I know, I'm old enough now to know the, the, the terrible cost of self-righteousness and of failing to love people, especially the unlovely. Now, this takes us quickly to the second story, the story of the lost coin. It's not nearly as involved as the first story, nor will it be nearly as dramatic as the third story, but it's, it's here in the middle of these, this threesome, and it's got its own place. Uh, everything doesn't parallel exactly, but the obvious parallels are there. There's something precious that's been lost through carelessness. There's desperation and searching till it's found. And then there's a rejoicing by the whole community in the finding of that which was lost. But that's not the only reason Jesus puts this in here. Most scholars see this second part of Jesus' response to the angry Pharisees. Remember Jesus, remember all the way through this, Jesus is responding to the anger and the murmuring and the cutthroat bitterness of the Pharisees who are spreading poison in hopes of pulling the rug out from under Jesus because they hate these filthy perverts that Jesus is opening his heart and welcoming and eating with. Remember, he's not just letting them stay there. He's welcoming them. He's not just welcoming them. He's hugging them. He's not just hugging them. He's eating with them. And the Pharisees are just fit to be tied. So um, the Pharisees are, are, you know, Jesus is doing all this to, to answer them. And Jesus is strongly confronting a cultural prejudice in order to rebuke them. So just as in the first story of the shepherds, which are considered beneath the upper classes of people, so Jesus gives honor to the shepherds in the first story. Well, who's he honoring in this one? Well, he's honoring women. You'll notice, we don't have time to look at other examples, but if we get to do this study more in detail in future times together, Jesus almost never says anything to a group without addressing men and then women, which again is something that flies in the face of the culture. Everybody knows you don't even talk about women. I mean, you don't give them any place at all. In fact, even today in many Arab cultures and Middle Eastern cultures, if a man is in a conversation with other men and the subject of, of a woman comes up and he's unable to avoid directly mentioning a woman, he will mention the woman and then ask the pardon of the men for mentioning a woman out loud. Okay? So here comes Jesus, and once again, he, he flies in the face of what everybody knows. Everybody knows women are lower class, don't fit, have no value. So Jesus strongly confronts a cultural prejudice in order to rebuke it, just as in the first story of the shepherds, which, you know, they considered beneath them. 
So Jesus honors the shepherds. So in the next situation, women in the person of the peasant woman in search of her lost coin is given equal treatment by Jesus. Now, the only thing that's not equal is the woman is not necessarily rebuked for having failed to protect the coin like the shepherds, the under-shepherds, were rebuked for having failed to go after the lost sheep. I think the only reason Jesus is bringing in this story is to bring in women, first to honor them equally with men, but also to make it clear that he expects everyone in the sound of his voice, male and female, to be brought under the force of the story, and that is that the whole community is responsible for seeking that which is lost and rejoicing over it when it's restored. It's a community event. Just like it was in the restoring of the sheep, it's a community event in the restoring of the coin. The sense of responsibility for seeking and restoring whatever precious thing has been lost belongs to men, women, and the entire community. Can you hear this as a a part of the body of Christ? That, to me anyway, is the main force of this middle parable. These two now pave the way for the third and most powerful parable of all. In it, all the elements of the first two are present, but this time there are cultural sacred cows that will be overthrown on a level never heard before by these people. And in the midst of Jesus' unfolding of this final parable, A view of God the Father is about to be presented that is the most important revelation ever given to these people and maybe to us. How does the eternal creator of the universe communicate to us his true nature? How much has our fallenness impaired our ability to comprehend the living God? When the seraphim around the throne repeat, Holy, 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 A word that by its very definition means that which is so other than us, so beyond us, that nothing can be compared with him. Nothing can be used to describe him. What will he say that we can grasp? How will he reveal himself to us? I started off talking about one of the difficulties of our generation is this feeling that, yes, God is okay. You say he's holy. You say he's, he's, uh, he's great and I'm small. He's what it's all about and I'm not what it's about, about, all about. Well, that's, that's true. But if that's all you have to say, if God is holy, 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 that is, that is the first thing you must say about God. It is the first thing, because if God is not holy, then God is unholy, which means God is like that unfortunate song, what if God's, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? I understand what she's trying to say in that song, but she misses the point. The point is God is not like us or anybody else. Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? Majestic in holiness terrifying and glorious deeds. These flaming beings called the seraphim, they're they're not angels. They're way, way beyond angels. And they bow in his presence, cover their face, and say, holy, holy, holy. Okay. 
we get a glimpse of that. But what if he comes down to us? How will he make himself known? How will he reveal himself? How will he communicate to us? He comes down in the person of his very own son, the one who is the very image and perfect expression of his character and nature. So that the Son says, He who sees the Son sees the Father. And Paul says, In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And the writer of Hebrews says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. The Father says to the Son, The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Father and the Son know each other intimately. And the Son, who has been sent to exegete the Father, is about to tell a story about what the Father is like. No one in all the universe will have such authority as the storyteller has himself. What he reveals is then the most important revelation that could possibly be given to us, the revelation of the heart of the Father given by the Son. We will take up this revelation in our next session together. God bless you. Thank you for listening.